0: This podcast is powered by Tequila Fortaleza, handmade in small batches and hands down, my favorite tequila. Hey, folks, you know, I'm always telling you ask your doctor if Baja is right for you. Well, I don't know what your doctor's going to say, but I want to let you know right now it's the open enrollment period for the 2023 Baja XL Rally. That's right. If you need a little Baja care, you got to get in right now during the open enrollment period for the 2023. AHA XL Rally. February 17th through 26th, it's 3,000 miles in 10 days. It's a minimal assistance rally. That means there's no rescue trucks or no medical helicopters or no travel guides. You get to rely on your own wits and resources and probably the other 150 or 180 vehicles that are in this rally with you who are always darn nice and willing to tow you out or give you a ride to the auto parts store or to the mechanic or whatever you need. But, hey, The Baja XL is open to anyone, buy anything, so if it's street legal, you can drive at their classes. There's a competition class if you want to get in and solve geotagging, treasure hunt questions all day and all night. There's the 4x4 touring class that Slow Baja does where we just pull out our benchmark map first thing in the morning, get some chocolate, some eggs, some hot coffee, take a look at where the route ends that day and figure out what the most scenic squiggly dirt roads are uh, on our map, and that's that's how we do it. Um, Again, there's no judging. It's a heck of a lot of fun. It's a major league adventure, and it will certainly, certainly cure your... uh, your symptoms of uh, mild seasonal lack of adventuring. All right, ask your doctor if Baja is right for you. The Baja XL Rally. More info at BajaXL.org or feel free to DM me through slowbaha.com or the Slow Baja uh, Instagram or Facebook sites for more info. Well, hello, happy new year. Thanks for tuning in to the Slow Baja. Today's show is from the archive, and before you switch the dial back to Sports Talk Radio, um, I just want to say I recently watched the Journeys of Harry Crosby, Isaac Ardenson's amazing film about Harry Crosby and his obsession, his obsession with um, the, the mountain people, the ranchers, the vaqueros, the. The rural life of Baja that led him to uh, find. Uh, to see these cave paintings. Certainly he didn't discover them, but to see them and to bring them to a much, much wider audience. It's an amazing film. And Paul Ganster, who's the guest today on Slow Baja, uh, rode a lot of miles on mules with Harry and uh, was his assistant for much of the travels. Uh, Paul was a grad student and uh, took some time off to travel Baja with Harry. And he features prominently in the film. And I just wanted to bring you this, conversation that i had with paul back in december of 2020 is way uh into the covid stuff and um we were sitting far apart from each other i, I think i'm kind of yelling my questions over to him but uh, we're outside in his driveway in sunny san diego and the parrots are flying over and paul is very professorial of course he's a retired professor and he gives you quite a dissertation on uh harry which was my secret ambition of uh uh, getting this conversation and on the fantastic book that he wrote on the challenges of Loretto uh, and the development pressures, et cetera, et cetera. So, if you're interested in Harry Crosby, you got to listen to this one. And certainly, Paul gives you a real education on what's going on with Loretto and how they can, uh, how you can help um, eco travel and other things happen so Loretto doesn't get built up into a Cancun. All right, without further ado. Professor Paul Ganster, and uh, you're listening to Slow Baja, so thanks for tuning in. Hey, I'm delighted to be here on Slow Baja with Dr. Paul Ganster at his beautiful home here in San Diego. We're sitting outside. It's a lovely, warm day. You may hear some of the wild parrots flying by, and... uh, um, Dr. Ganster and I are sitting about 15 feet apart. We're being very safe in these COVID days, and I'm just delighted to be here. So thank you. Well, thank you for coming, and I'm glad we could arrange this. And uh, please call me Paul. Well, Paul, on extraordinarily short notice, Edie uh, uh, Littlefield Sunby suggested strongly, strongly. She's a forceful woman that I get a hold of you, and I'm just returning back from a Baja trip. And you were kind enough to make some time for me, and she has been so kind to uh, connect me to people that she uh, feels have something important to say about Baja. So I'm quite indebted to her to be here today. So let's get on with it. Tell me about uh, your your personal history and and how you how Baja came into your life. Well, I grew up in. San Diego from
1: the 8th grade on and from day one ended up with various friends, relatives uh, going into Baja California, sometimes the typical tourism shopping in on Avenida Revolucion but uh, more often fishing uh, south of Ensenada on the coast. Uh, but in, the, in my junior year of high school, I was at La Jolla High School, I took a class with Harry Crosby, He's my chemistry teacher, and he and I hit it off. Uh, I went on a couple of trips to northwestern Mexico with him, uh, the foothills of Sonora, uh, places that later you really couldn't travel to because of the drug cartels. And uh, we got along very well. I spent a lot of time at his house. I uh, uh, learned photography from him. He was just getting into becoming a professional photographer. Uh, I worked for him a bit when he was doing some furniture designing and manufacturing. And then I went off to uh, college and uh, didn't come back to San Diego really on a permanent basis for 20 years but had always kept up with Harry and Joanne and his his family and uh, after I graduated from Yale I went to uh, UCLA for my PhD in Latin American history and in my trips back and forth from uh, Santa Monica to to La Jolla, I'd always, uh, and San Diego, I'd always see Harry and Joanne. But uh, at that time, uh, this would have been in 1967, he had arranged a commission to photograph the trail followed by the expedition of uh, 1769 that went from Loreto and Baja California, mid peninsula overland up to San Diego to establish uh, San Diego, establish a mission and a presidio. And so uh, he was talking about this and asked if I'd like to accompany him for part of it so I took uh, a couple of quarters off of my graduate education and in 1967 we appeared in Loreto and uh, arranged Uh, animals to transport us, found guides uh, at different places uh, on the journey and eventually ended up following the old El Camino Real up the peninsula and up the spine of the peninsula through the mountains because that's where water is to um, eventually up to uh, San Diego parts of it were covered by vehicle uh, but most on animals. Where a vehicle simply couldn't get at that time, and that was really an incredible experience. I had a strong interest in uh, colonial history and the whole process of of settlement and expansion of the Spanish Empire up to San Diego. Uh, Harry uh, had a great interest in uh, the the environment in the incredible scenery and in the really fabulous people that we met, the the ranch uh, families who really form a subculture that's I think unique in anywhere in the world of people who've been self-sufficient and very welcoming to outsiders. So in that trip I got a really good sense of uh, traditional culture in the mountains of Baja California and uh, really made a lasting impression on me and with Harriet, uh, had an incredible impact on his career because it led to subsequent efforts on exploring and documenting the, the great murals or cave paintings uh, of the mountains of Baja California and led to a number of books including Uh, really uh, the most detailed and analytical and well-documented study of the Jesuit period in uh, Baja California. Uh, He really started out to do a a broader study but realized he had to go back to the beginnings of Baja California and that led to his archival research and we interacted a lot on that because uh, that was my field of study: colonial, the colonial empire in Spanish America. I ended up doing my Ph.D. research in Lima on uh, colonial society, and then I later uh, worked in the Mexican archives as well. So we always communicated on that. Anyway, fast forward uh, uh, many years, really, uh, sometime around 2000. Uh, I began to return more frequently to the Loreto area, uh, partly uh, from interest, uh, partly because I began to explore various research options uh, in, in the region. By that time I was a faculty member at San Diego State University uh, where I'd been hired in 1984 to uh, establish an institute dealing with the border region and the peninsula of Baja California. And so I had legitimate professional uh, reasons, and I was always interested in Loreto. When we first entered Loreto in 1967, I remember very clearly, I don't think there was a paved road in town. the mission church structure was more or less intact it had been repaired in the late 40s and early 50s Uh, but the settlement of the town was on large square lots a very uh, non-dense settlement and really little country ranchos uh, in an urban environment people had large lots they all had animals they had little Uh, kitchen gardens, Uh, there were uh, mangoes and other types of fruit trees but it was just a a delightful place and one could sense that there was a very strong traditional uh, culture present there so unlike what one uh, encountered farther north in the peninsula in the very dynamic areas such as Tijuana for example which we're just growing uh, so, so fast. Well, so around 2000, uh, I began to interact with colleagues I would met at various uh, international conferences, Uh, and we started to uh, think about some research on Baja California, the Gulf area, and my main collaborator really for 25 years has been Oscar Arispe, who's the head of a coastal um, uh, laboratory at the Autonomous University of Baja California in La Paz. He's a marine scientist and uh, uh, I'm a historian but we worked together very well and found that combination of our disciplines really gave us the ability to look at sort of human and nature and science uh, and the interactions Uh, so we uh, have done another a number of studies over the years uh, and a couple of them have concentrated on on Loreto and what we did was to pull together researchers from the peninsula from SDSU and occasionally from other universities in the states uh, to look at different aspects of local reality and the purpose of these was to provide a, a basis of knowledge and understanding that could help inform uh, decision-makers in the community and you know, hopefully the community at large, uh, hopefully policy makers, uh, to help them better understand the challenges and opportunities that they faced uh, in managing their region.
0: Before we jump too much into Loretto today and the issues that we're going to discuss, you need to bring me right back to Harry talking to you about, Paul, I want you to come down to Baja with me and we're going to check out the El Camino and how did you get to loretto did francisco munoz fly you down did you take a boat did you take a car tell me about that part first and then you glossed over 600 miles on mule (laughs) and your your documentation your intimate detailed documentation of that journey that's provided a lot of information for people who have you know had a chance to reflect on that so let's not gloss over that well when harry and i were
1: getting ready uh go down to Loretta where the Camino Real in essence uh, began because that was the head of the California missions and civil government in California at the time, um, we uh, did discuss how to get there and Harry decided the best thing to do would be to uh, get a vehicle capable of, capable of, of moving across the the difficult roads at the time there was no paved road going down uh, the peninsula so uh, he basically built and I helped a little bit when I had time uh, a a modified dune buggy based on a, a VW and the beauty of the VW base for traveling in Baja California is that they have Uh, Good traction because the engine's in the rear, over the wheels, and they have four-wheel independent suspension. Uh, Now, if you were in a Dodge Power Wagon on a washboard road, it just shakes your teeth loose, uh, and you can't go fast enough to to bounce over the washboard ruts and smooth the, the ride out. But I... A dune buggy will, will do that, uh, faster, more comfortable. But we made the mistake of having it a s- semi-open um, uh, arrangement. We did have some side curtains, but boy, did dust ever uh, leak in. And boy, are the roads dusty some places in Baja, California. Uh, nonetheless, we, um, we went down and we actually uh, we went through Mexicali because there had been some winter rains and the San Quentin area uh, had some road washouts and so on. So we went down through Mexicali, San Felipe, and south and cut over to the main highway and then uh, drove into Loreto in in the dune buggy, which which worked out uh, uh, just fine. In fact, I, I... found some photographs of Harry with the dune buggy, uh, not too long ago and it brought back, uh, interesting, uh, memories.
0: So were you camping each night or were you staying in a little, uh, whatever accommodations, Papa Diaz or whoever might have accommodations? What, what was your,
1: yeah, we did both. We, uh, you know, if we could find a, a convenient place to stay, that was fine. Otherwise we camped out, uh, in some of the small towns at different, uh, stages of the trip we just ask around and it'd say, oh yeah so-and-so will uh, rent out a room or a place to stay and and uh, so-and-so cooks meals and you can get breakfast and and breakfast was universally great uh... wonderful beans and tortillas occasionally with a little bit of uh... uh... Meat thrown in but nonetheless or cheese and nonetheless much appreciated um, so really we uh, traveled the way people traveled uh, I mean there were commercial travelers that went up and down the peninsula uh, I guess we would have called them tinkers in the old days and in, in the US but people who sold dried goods and uh, anything they could to, to make a living and we uh, we did encounter a few of these. They, were, they went by the name of uh, uh But places they would stay, we would end up staying. And of course, once we got off the paved road, uh, then it was staying at the various ranches. And sometimes we'd put a tent up, but more often we'd sleep under a, a ramada, uh, some kind of a Uh, shelter, uh, but the weather was uh, always wonderful in uh, November, December, January, February in the peninsula, uh, particularly in the mountains. Life on the trail was, was really quite fascinating because usually we were going with a couple of local cowboys, and we had to find different cowboys as we traveled because they tended to know only their region and they knew it really well and intimately but we would begin to get on the edges of territory that they really understood and we'd have to find someone else to serve as guides and to help uh, uh, manage the animals.
0: Paul do you have a do you have a um an estimate on what their range is is it 30 miles is it 50 miles because i'd heard this before from trudy angel as well as uh edie that these vaqueros they know their they know the place i hate to use a cliche like the back of their hand but they know their portion of it and what's your estimate on that is it well you know i don't know i I couldn't give you (laughs) i hate to say it but i think it
1: depends uh a few of the cowboys we'd encountered had actually uh, been involved in uh, uh, transporting animals or or things to sale for sale uh, products uh, into some of the towns at it, it maybe three or four days' ride, and they knew those trails well. But generally, the cowboys uh, kind of stuck around. Uh, Their ranches or ranches of relatives, and I'm guessing a diameter of, I don't know, uh, 50, 60 miles, but I have no way to, to support that guess. Yeah,
0: that's an awful lot when you're going on horseback or muleback or by foot. That that really is quite a range, frankly, uh, when, you yeah, think, when you think uh, about it that way rather than just uh, an hour in the car.
1: Well, a good hard day's riding with pack animals we could cover fourteen miles depending upon Amazing. the uh, the terrain and so on. Amazing. And we learned pretty quickly that uh, horses were useless and uh, it was all mules and, and the reason is that mule. well two reasons, one mules uh, could survive on the the forage and the brush and the browse encountered along the trail and secondly when they walked they would put their rear foot exactly where their front foot had been so they could pick their way through boulder fields and rocks uh, very well and horses couldn't quite do that. Also mules, uh, although difficult sometimes, tended to be a little calmer and didn't panic the way horses would sometimes. So you could actually have a mule roll over uh, and do a turtle, legs in the air, and remain calm while you went up and uh, took the packs off and somehow got them righted again. I'm not sure that could happen with with a horse. Uh, On the trail, um, we get up early with the light and get something to eat. Uh, Harry and I brought a lot of oatmeal with us, and the cowboys detested it because uh, real men ate meat.
0: And is that machaca or something? They've, they've got well, to have something to try. machaca
1: or dried meat or, or just uh, fresh meat. You know, you could take a slab of fresh meat and keep it covered. Uh, for a couple of days, and it would just get tenderer and tenderer as you as you went along.
0: You can't see me smiling behind my mask, <laughs> but I'm smiling with my eyes. Yes, tenderer and tenderer. <laughs> and, and
1: actually, yeah. by the third day, I was usually pretty good. I mean, <laughs> just like going down to your local supermarket. Okay. Um, and so you know, we'd be up and off. Of course, coffee was uh, was critical and. Coffee is a, a baja California uh, necessity. It's a social institution in towns like Loreto. Historically, uh, visiting for morning coffee was a major uh, social event of of the local people. And uh, I remember walking around Loreto uh, in the little time we spent there in 1967, and you could just Smell the coffee early in the in the morning, uh, really fabulous. And on the trail, when you'd pull into a ranch, the first thing they would do would be to pull out uh, uh, the coffee making materials, and and everyone would have a cup of
0: coffee while you um and socialized. Let me interject there. That's ground beans, and poured through a sock, or you're in an enamel pot. That's pretty traditional coffee, right? You're yeah. not you're not doing Nescafe. Uh, you still find
1: some people doing it, and um, uh, it's basically filter coffee with a uh, using just a, a cloth bag. Right. Uh, and it's actually a similar method used in Costa Rica until relatively uh, recently, but it produces a very rich uh, uh, coffee. Uh, very often they would buy. Uh, unroasted beans and, and just toast the beans and then grind them and and that would be the coffee. Uh, I never saw them preparing cowboy coffee the way we, we do it by boiling uh, the grounds uh, and then just uh, trying to uh, let pour it settle off the coffee without getting too much grit right uh, and so the the ranch coffee was pretty standard and pretty wonderful uh, one one difference though is uh, Harry and I like black coffee uh, and the ranch people tended to like it with sweets with sugar, so we always had a discussion about uh, uh
0: what coffee was yeah. best? Yeah, I'm a black coffee drinker as well. Hey, what was your role on that trip? What did Harry sell you on? What did you do? Because I know you produced drawings, which you haven't talked about yet. But what, what other, what other duties did you have? How was it broken down? And was it broken down formally or just informally? No,
1: just uh, you know, we'd traveled enough together that, and we got on pretty well. So, uh, I just, uh, you know, helped with everything. Uh, I helped the cowboys with the animals, uh, I'd climb up in trees with a machete and, and chop off branches in, in the Palo Verdes that the mules would crunch on all night.
0: Like all Yale men. Right. You've got your machete and you can do any job you need to. Right.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, you know, I, I took trail notes, I, uh, I, I took a lot of photographs, in fact some a lot of the photographs in Harry's books that are of him, I actually took.
0: Can we talk a little bit about your equipment? Because I'm a photographer as well, and I think I think listeners would just be interested in, did you just have rolls of Tri-X in a, an old Nikon or a Pentax? or What, what no, gear I had, did you have? Uh, a Roloflex?
1: I think for that trip, if I remember correctly, I had a Bronica
0: outfit. Wow. Not fooling around. Yeah, it's... Uh, uh,
1: and and Harry had uh, a couple of different things. Uh, one of them was a Hasselblad Super Wide C. And I'm not sure he took it on that. But we both had what you'd call large or medium format cameras using the 120 film. And Triac sometimes, but usually it was a slower speed, high resolution. and
0: So Kodachrome in those days, or Ektachrome?
1: Well, uh, we did both. Uh, we did black and white, and uh, uh, actually the, the color that I tended to use was ectochrome, but also Chrome. Okay. And I've noticed uh, many years later, the, the agf- Chrome dyes have held up pretty well, and so some of them are still pretty uh, uh, vivid, the, the, the color shots.
0: Well, you had to be very good, as a photographer. I'm assuming you had a handheld light meter or something, but you oh. had to really know your stuff in those days. Oh yeah, I mean to shoot uh, with slide uh, <laughs> film in the field, not yeah. see it developed, of course, for weeks or months, and well, transport it carefully. Do what you could to keep it from baking in the sun. Yeah, uh, we
1: we we uh, just accumulated lots of exposed rolls, and then when we got back, or somebody was going back, we just took it in uh, to be developed, or we would process it ourselves if it was black and white. I'd done a lot of black and white uh, lab work, Uh, I'd uh, traveled, uh, you know, many many areas taking lots of photographs, so I, I was pretty pretty experienced. At one time I thought about becoming a professional photographer, but interest led me in a in a different direction. In terms of transporting the stuff, we we, we constructed special saddlebags to fit on the animals uh, so we could actually access things on on the trail, uh, yet everything was padded with foam and, and protected from uh, banging into cactus and brush and that sort of thing.
0: And what sort of attire, what what clothing were you wearing? I imagine your your jeans would have been shredded by the end of a trip well, like that. Well,
1: I, I just wore jeans and... Uh, Did you have chaps? And, uh, you know, uh, cotton work shirts and... Uh, there are parrots. But, and uh, uh, hiking boots of a sort. I didn't I didn't take cowboy boots because uh, we knew we'd be do- a lot of walking, so I had something that was a little bit sturdier. And we we both generally had leggings of one sort or another to, to keep uh, thorns from penetrating into our uh, legs as we rode through the brush. Uh, but you know, things things held up pretty well on the trail. and. Uh, You know we didn't uh, wear them out by washing them or anything like that so uh, I used to joke that after about two or three days on the trail things didn't matter much because we smelled just like the mules at that
0: time well uh, again you sketched maps I read here that uh, you sketched maps that showed the complexities of trail and terrain tell me about those complexities
1: well what uh, the method we used for following the trail was to, first of all, get the best topo maps that we could, and the Mexican government had a fairly decent series available at that time. Uh, and then uh, we uh, used the various uh, descriptions that were available of the trail by uh, members of the original expedition and by later travelers. And uh, then in talking to the cowboys, you know, we'd describe what, what, what we had found, and particularly Harry had gone through and made a concordance of all of the different trail descriptions. Uh, we were able to talk to the cowboys about that, and they'd have a discussion and say, oh yeah, that goes on that side of the peak, it crosses the arroyo at that place and then they talk about whether uh, there were any obvious physical remains because in most areas of the Camino Real and remember there are many branches of it and some were used, some uh, were uh, renewed because of weather problems and washouts and so on Uh, But pretty soon the cowboys with us learned to recognize uh, trails that had actually been built uh, particularly on the uh, the climbs and and the downhill places where sometimes construction was necessary both to preserve the trail and to make it passable for uh, mules. Or across some of the desert stretches uh, uh, the Jesuits had gone through, and it looked as though they surveyed it and threw the rocks out to the side and ended up with a perfectly straight line across a, a broad flat mesa or broad, broad flat arroyo. So, discussions with uh, the cowboys and local people about routes was always uh, something that. Um, uh, we engaged in and was complicated and occasionally we got led uh, off course by a lazy cowboy but we figured that out pretty quickly and would have to do some (laughs) backtracking
0: Here at Slow Baja, we can't wait to drive our old Land Cruiser south of the border. And when we go, we'll be going with Baja Bound Insurance. The websites fast and easy to use, check them out at BajaBound.com. That's BajaBound.com, serving Mexico travelers since 1994. Well, we're back with Paul Ganster here in his house. The parrots are still with us. It's a beautiful sunny day. We're sitting in the shade and we're just going to jump right back into what we were talking about. the. Uh, El Camino, and you, Paul. I don't think you talked about. Um, you've you've mentioned the Jesuits. Uh, that's Portola, as we say in San Francisco. Portola. or yeah, portola. portola. Portolo, as they say. Portola. they call it? It's, it should be in
1: Spanish, Portola. But that's uh, that's
0: the way the, that's the way those in the know in San Francisco say it. Can you break down the uh, Portola to Sarah and how the the the, the mission period came and when it was at its peak and then when it dissipated and they handed it off and, and what well, happened with the El Camino no. and lastly your opinion on the El Camino's value a history.
1: And quite in f- early on uh, in the 16th century, uh, really by the 1540s Spanish uh, explorations on the land and on the sea had pretty much uh, mapped out to the north, and that includes the peninsula of Baja California and uh, a bit of the California co- uh, coast. Uh, and they realized there weren't really any exploitable wealth uh, uh, in the area, and instead concentrated on central Mexico. But the peninsula was important for one major reason, and that was the Manila Galleon, the annual ship that came over from uh, the Philippines uh, loaded with uh, Chinese products. Uh, It would go north along the coast of Japan across the northern Pacific and hit the coast in northern California or Oregon and then come down the coast uh, to Acapulco. But by the time they they hit the California coast, the the crew uh, tended to be in very bad condition because of months without proper diet and so on. And so they needed a port to um, uh, refresh themselves, get water and so on. And that led to the settlement of the Baja California uh, Peninsula. Uh, because it was such a God-forsaken place, full of rocks and, and, uh, and thorns, as one Jesuit uh, described it, Uh, The Crown didn't want to undergo the expense and instead worked out an arrangement with the Jesuits to have that as their exclusive mission field to save souls, uh, with a little bit of support and the civil authorities, the army as well. But in essence, the Jesuits undertook it as a project they financed through charitable contributions and they established uh, their first headquarters in Loreto and then went inland and south and eventually occupied the southern part of the peninsula. In uh, 1767, the Jesuits were expelled from the Spanish Empire for all of the political intrigue and uh, the crown named the Franciscans to take over But the Franciscans uh, didn't want to just take over missions that were declining in in, uh, Indian population rapidly, and so they got involved in the thrust north and up the coast of California uh, because the imperial authorities were very concerned that the Russians were coming across the Bering Strait and down into the north, and so there was a real competition for empire, and there was a need, a a political need, to expand up the coast as quickly as possible. So uh, the Spanish government organized and authorized uh, uh, expeditions to establish mission, presidios, uh, eventually towns, going up uh, California, and eventually they reached as far as Sonoma, north of San Francisco. So that the Franciscans uh, undertook initially managing the Baja California miss- missions, but once they got into California, they left the field to the Dominicans who came in later. So there were the shifting uh, uh, mission orders uh, involved, and that was always an important part of the conquest on the frontier. Uh, we, uh, In Baja California Sur, there's nothing left of the indigenous past other than physical remains, cave paintings, and so on. The indigenous people were so hard hit by the European diseases and social dislocation that uh, their numbers declined rapidly and, uh, and very, very tragically. Uh, I just wanted to mention that... Uh, Life on the trail up the peninsula is very interesting because uh, every every so often you'd encounter petroglyphs obviously made during the mission period of crosses and so on, uh, constructed uh, uh, dams to hold water, uh, uh, little uh, irrigation canals, constructed roads so the the presence of the the missionaries, uh, was palpable. Uh, And then, even more importantly, the presence of the uh, colonial uh, social traditions and culture was present in the ranch families in many ways. And finally, in the intimate knowledge of the landscape and the ethnobotany, the uses of plants, and even the uses of animals, it was pretty clearly that 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 a lot of traditional indigenous learning had been passed on to the natives to the uh uh, what we call natives of the mid peninsula the hispanic uh, uh, descendants of the missionary soldiers so all of these things became uh, available uh, if you were if you thought about it on the trail and uh, there was lots of time to think on the trail because uh, at night, we hit the sack pretty early, and I remember lying on a uh, on my back uh in a sleeping bag we didn 't use tents because it just wasn't necessary, but looking up overhead and with our bare eyes, we could see Russian satellites going north and south uh, uh They had satellites that went up the the west coast to look at our military, but being able to see those uh uh it was kind of like looking from the 18th century to the 20th century at that
0: time. It's, it's interesting that you would touch on that because the, the nights are so inky black in Baja and it must have been even more so then going back 50 years ago. I, I you know, my experience is 80s forward. And to think about the newness of a satellite in space, There's not a lot moving around in the sky in those days, and to be able to say, "Hey, that's a Russian satellite going by," that's really astonishing. Yeah, it was uh, quite interesting,
1: and it's just something I've always uh, uh, remembered. Can can you,
0: can I break you off of that for a second? I just had some thoughts. Again, I'm just back from a Baja trip in my 1990s Forerunner. Normally, I'm in my 1971. Toyota Land Cruiser, which is completely stock, and it's just a just a step up from the burrows that you were on. It really it really takes a toll on your body. What was it like on your body? What were those nights like when you got off the the burrow? How did your body feel? You were a young young man, but
1: look, I was 21 or 22, and uh, you know I'd played football. I'd done a lot of hiking in the Sierras as a kid, and was used to pretty strenuous. Uh, uh, life, done a lot of diving and, and swimming and body surfing, and, uh, you know, we'd be bone tired at the end of the day, but still enough energy to climb up in the trees and and cut down branches for the mules and, and help pack them up in the morning. And, uh, uh, although some people don't believe it, uh, just sitting on a, a mule for 14 hours is, is a pretty big physical effort it's got to be exhausting,
0: particularly when you're going across very rough terrain yeah and, uh, your your yeah. core just must be amazing the the toll on your body
1: yeah, but you know look at look at the cowboys they did this stuff all day every day and uh and uh they're just fine but but sure uh we're we're pretty sore for a few days, but then things evened out and
0: Nobody complain fine, to complain yeah. to. Yeah, nobody to complain to. So you just get on with it.
1: Yeah, we just got on with it, and uh, that's that's the way things were. All right. Well, uh, let's let's. L- let me uh, oh, go ahead. Let me sort of detour back to a more modern time, if if that's okay. Please, and, I was just going to ask. Yes, a contemporary Loreto, um, although I love looking back and remembering what uh, what the world was like in the uh, 1960s and 70s. The Loreto today, uh, despite growth spurts, still retains a charm and a a, a a cultural sense and cultural traditions that harken back to the 18th, and 19th centuries, and it's it's an existence and really a social reality that. Uh, that's under threat uh, by a couple of things. Probably most importantly is what I call the hyper development of of major tourism development. The Mexican government in the 70s came up with a policy to develop tourism resorts to attract foreign people with hard currency, uh, mainly uh, Uh, people from the US but also from Canada and and Europe and so they developed a model that we've all seen in Cancun or parts of Acapulco or the major coastal resorts and that was the fate of Los Cabos and uh, they also attempted it in Loreto but things never took off in Loreto for for various reasons and the problem with planting a large uh, sand and sun development in a place like Loreto is that it totally overwhelms local society and local culture uh, It, in essence it, it erases it and a unique thing about Loreto is its historical tradition and culture and it's something that I feel is important to be saved in the uh, early 2000s, the Mexican Tourism Group, or Fonatur, again tried to uh, stimulate massive development of Loreto, which started with a Canadian developer with some good ideas, but eventually they, they wanted to sort of treble the population uh, and, and build all kinds of dense coastal development. And what saved Loreto from that was the recession of 2008, multiple bankruptcies, uh, and so it attenuated development and slowed it down. Uh, However, now they seem to be making another effort, and we'll just have to see how that goes. Uh, Fortunately, or unfortunately, Mexico is in difficult financial straits now uh, because of COVID, but also the policies of the new Mexican administration, which isn't so much uh, concerned about development of big tourism areas, but uh, has a strong focus on uh, social welfare, which uh, is uh, fairly new. So Loreto does face the threat of development. And the natural resources of Loreto can only support a certain amount of people. Uh, Water is is scarce. Fresh water is scarce and it's a constant crisis. And there's also something we call the view shed. One of the values of Loreto is the, the wonderful views up to the mountains and out to the sea. But the minute you start Putting up a wall of high rises along the beach that's destroyed for everyone and can never be uh, recovered. So, in a sense, um, development is an existential threat to the traditional Loreto and people who live in Loreto, if not managed properly. And for years, it's been obvious to me and other researchers and Uh, people interested in sustainability that the path forward should really be looking at alternative tourism. Uh, Things such as uh, what uh, Trudy does, uh, leading mule rides, having people visit ranches. It keeps the cowboys and the ranches in business. Uh, Ecological tours out to the islands. It employs the, the fishermen instead of depleting fishing stocks. Uh, This type of tourism is generally uh, run by family-run firms, income is distributed more evenly, Uh, it it creates an economy where money recirculates and doesn't all go out to Mexico City or the U.S. And the Camino Real uh, could be a very important part of that. If the Camino is declared a World Heritage Site, and local tourism agencies, state and federal, uh, do what they can to help organize uh, the Camino Real as a tourism site and destination. And we have good examples of how this can work. For example, uh, the Appalachian Trail, uh, the Pacific Crest Trail, and and the Camino de Santiago in northern Spain. So there are some movements now to to use this wonderful colonial resource, the Camino Real, as a tourism destination, that would not only be historical but goes through fabulous uh, uh, geology, through uh, ecosystems of plants and animals that are that are just wonderful and and very exotic. So the the tourist, the course of tourism for uh, Loreto is. Um, I think, very important. And Loreto has been named one of the magic towns of of Mexico, small towns with traditional uh, value. And uh, if they can retain that, that's terrific Uh, and not become a tragic town and go the wrong uh, direction. Loreto has a number of really, I think, existential challenges to worry about right now currently COVID, uh, which uh, is a huge issue. And I don't think Loreto is managing it very well. People aren't wearing masks or they're not social distancing. I mean, to tell a large extended Mexican family to social distance is very difficult. It doesn't work in Loreto. It doesn't work in San Diego. Um, People say, well, but it's family. How could that hurt? And that's really unfortunate. but other threats that are a little bit below the radar right now is climate change. Uh, in, our, in our recent uh, book, my friends who are leading climate scientists and others point out that Loreto is already seeing effects of climate change through increasing temperatures. That means lower nighttime temp- or higher nighttime temperatures, and higher daytime temperatures. So things during the hot season don't cool down as much. Uh, Periods of drought tend to become a little more extended. Uh, Extreme weather will continue to be as bad or worse. Plus sea level rise is particularly uh, critical for Loreto. If you look at the maps of the projecting what it's going to be like when sea level rises one meter or a half a meter, you'll see that large parts of urban Loreto in the old town will be inundated plus a lot of new developments to the south in Nopolo will also have some problems. So you combine sea level rise with storm surge because sooner or later a hurricane is going to uh, hit Loretto directly, again, as it has in the past. Um, caught us flooding in the Royos. That, that's a real uh, disaster, and there are um, thing, steps that could be taken. The municipality is aware of them, and some private groups are starting to do these things, such as restoration of dunes and vegetation to, to really hold the coastal uh, barriers. Another existential threat to some extent is water. Uh, Loreto is always on the verge of running out of water and they authorize development without really considering where the water is going to come from. And the aquifers um, don't replenish rapidly, um, so that's just a long-term concern. And uh, desalination is one solution but it's very difficult to discharge the highly saline uh, remnants of that process into a national park that's an important marine reserve because those saline waters kill a lot of juvenile species. So that that's a real uh, difficult question that Loretto's are going to have to come to grips with. And also Fonatur sends the wrong message because they still have medians and large areas of um, uh, of these new developments that are in grass that are water hogs they look nice and golf courses look nice but boy they use a lot of water and that's really unfortunate
0: Paul you've you've Co-authored a book about this. You've been thinking about Loretto for more than 50 years now. Where are some positives? Where Where do you? What What brings you back to Loretto? What, on balance, gives you some hope? Because it can't. I, I, we just can't exist with full, you know, uh, negative thoughts, it, 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 even though they they probably are correct. What gives you some hope? Well, I think the
1: the, the positive of Loreto, there are a couple. I think first and foremost are what I call the human capital. Uh, The people, the culture, the historic traditions of the people in the region. And in a sense that goes from even urban residents to of course the rural residents. Uh, Just really uh, wonderful and interesting people. Uh, Secondly of course the Incredible natural scenery is something that uh, uh, can't be duplicated. Uh, A trip out on the bay in the early morning with dolphins uh, uh, jumping. Uh, A walk around one of the protected islands. Uh, uh, People who do scuba dive uh, enjoy that. Plus everything in the Sierra La Giganta. uh, uh, a fabulous natural region. I mean those are those are some of the uh, attractions. The unpar- unparalleled natural beauty of the region is certainly a uh, an attraction and the absence of Cancun type uh, or Los Cabos type uh, development is a
0: huge attraction as well. So uh, we're going to wrap it up here. I'd like people, I'd like you to tell us about the book, the title of the book again, and where people can find it, and where people can find out more about you and your writings, and if you want to be in touch, how that occurs, if that's indeed something you're interested in.
1: Oh, okay. Uh, well, the the book that was published in 2020 by SDSU Press and is available through can be ordered through Amazon either as a Kindle format electronically or a hard copy is titled Loreto Mexico challenges for a sustainable future and the chapters deal with things such as an analysis of Loreto uh, Bay National Park uh, we have a study on local government how it's structured and how it's supposed to work uh, a couple of colleagues look at the issue of electric power in Loreto. There's no reason why Loreto should be burning uh, dirty fuel oil for, for electricity. Uh, the, the solar resources are incredible. Uh, we look at economic structure and well-being in Loreto. What's the, what, what's the economic quality of life of people in Loreto? Uh, we examine uh, small fishing and what fishermen or fishers are doing to earn a living now and how they've been able to link with uh, sustainable tourism. Uh, another chapter looks at the Camino Real and the proposals to create that as a World Heritage Site.
0: Uh, and do you think the odds are pretty good that UNESCO will, will move on that? I think so. I mean, it's, it's an awfully bold vision, but I, I think it's a no-brainer. Uh,
1: it, it, it is a no-brainer, but uh, it's slowly moving th- through the bureaucracy. So poco you add the UN bureaucracy to the Mexican bureaucracy, and it, it's, it just takes a little while. Uh, and, and We so also have chapters on climate change and the threat of mining, which has the potential to totally wipe out the sustainability in the region, water resources, And then a final chapter tries to pull all all that together and talk about the uncertain road ahead. And the basic message is, look, Loreto has this wonderful base of human capital and historic tradition. It's facing um, a number of very clear threats. uh, And really, people in Loreto need to become engaged and make the decisions necessary to... Uh, to re- retain quality of life in the region.
0: Well, uh, Paul Ganster, you've been very, very, very generous on very short notice with some time and a lot of information and great stories about Baja and Loretto of yore and Loretto of today. So if people want to be in touch with you, do you have a, a public profile that folks can find, or are you, uh, are you not playing that?
1: Well, Google me and you'll track me down. That's, okay. And you'll That's find my uh, You'll find my email and all that kind of stuff. That's right. the easiest way.
0: Well, I really appreciate you spending some time and talking about uh, our mutual passion of Baja. So thank you very much.
1: Many thanks, Michael.
0: Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Professor Paul Ganster. Brought your uh, your peachy notebook to class. Sat in on a lecture with Paul. He's really amazing. Uh, human being, really deeply passionate, and he lived it, wrote it, did it. Yale man climbing into the trees with a machete to uh, get a little something-something for the, the burros to, to chew on all night. Um, again, amazing uh, stories from Paul. Uh, if you like what I'm doing here, I got to ask you, it's a call to action. This is a call to action. You got to take a second and share this show with a friend. The folks at Spotify tell me that this was in the top 5% of shows shared internationally. Hard for me to believe, but I really want to say, hey, you know somebody. If you're listening, you know somebody that uh, needs to hear some slow baja. Please send them a link to the show. Also, if you're on Apple, and most of you are, I know the stats, most of you are, almost 90% of you are on Apple. Take a second, please, take a second. Knock that five-star review, say something nice about why you listen to Slow Baja, and it really does help people find the show, which keeps me doing this, I think. If uh, if I can get a few more of you to drop a taco in the tank, that would help, too. I am off to the Baja XL. That is 3,000 miles of dirt driving. Fortaleza is back with tequila, but I can't put tequila in the tank, so I do need your help. I can send you some stickers Right now, the Slow Baja Shop is going to close, of course, because I'm on the road. But I've got some stickers in hand. And uh, if you can drop a taco in the tank, I would greatly appreciate it. And I have a whole huge slug of new shows coming. So stay tuned for that. We're cranking out some videos, too. So it's going to be an awfully fun time. And uh, in closing, to paraphrase Mary McGee's pal, Steve McQueen... The guy who told Mary McGee at a New Year's Eve party to get off that pansy road racing motorcycle and come to Baja with him. Steve McQueen, that dude who loved Baja. Baja is life. Anything that happens before or after is just waiting.